The Foundation hosts podcasts to encourage a lively exchange of ideas related to our mission. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the Foundation's positions, strategies, or opinions. Welcome to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pioneering Ideas Podcast a podcast for people interested in exploring cutting-edge ideas and emerging trends that can transform health and healthcare. I'm your host, Lori Melliker, a Senior Program Officer at the Foundation. I have a drawer in my living room that is supposed to close automatically, but for the last few months, it hasn't. It has remained open, exposing a jumble of old photographs in the middle of my living room. There are a few reasons why it has stayed broken for so long. Number one, because I didn't know why it wouldn't close. There's nothing blocking it, no obvious reason it would one day stop working. Number two, because to be honest, it was easier for me to deal with the clutter than to think about fixing it. And number three, because I didn't know anyone who I could call to fix it. Today the drawer is closed because my dad visited this week from Oklahoma. After spending a few minutes doing the assessments I did, nothing blocking anything, nothing obviously wrong, he went out to the hardware store and returned with Velcro. He attached Velcro to the drawer and the wall it fits into, and voila, the drawer closed. Today, the drawer is closed because my dad is a maker. No, he doesn't go to maker fairs or subscribe to Make Magazine. He doesn't own a 3D printer. He's not a handyman, although he did grow up on a farm, so he knows how to fix combines and threshers. He's a maker because when he sees a problem, he doesn't stop working until he figures out how to solve it himself. Sometimes this means fixing the problem the way an expert might, but my drawer is closed not because he figured out the mechanism, but because he figured out a workaround. He used what was readily available to create a solution that is good enough. In today's episode, we're talking about people who see opportunity not in things that work, but in things that don't work. You'll hear stories about maker nurses hacking their hospital supply closets to improvise better patient care, and conversations with entrepreneurs who found alternative marketplaces for materials others viewed as waste. You'll hear about new ways of presenting health data to make it more useful. Another great lineup of people and ideas. So let's get started. Sometimes innovation in healthcare and other fields happens when someone redesigns a system. Other innovators hack the system. That's something Jose Gomez Marquez and Anna Young, who lead the Little Devices Lab at MIT, know a lot about. They view nurses who create the often uncelebrated workarounds that improve patients' lives at the bedside, not as rebels whose hacks should be hidden, but as creative makers, like my dad, who create the fixes and devices they need to provide optimal quality care using the materials they have at hand. Unlike my dad, who gets immediate awe and appreciation from me and my family for creatively making our lives a bit better while saving us money, what nurses make at the bedside to improve patients' lives often goes unrecognized by the healthcare field. With support from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Little Devices Lab is intently exploring how we can create communities of making in health, starting with a group that remains elusively innovative, the American Nurse. Jose and Anna are finding these nurses and figuring out ways to support them and leverage their creativity in bigger ways. They recently got on the phone with a couple of maker nurses they've met since engaging in this project. I'm Kelly Riley. I'm the Director of Nursing Research and Evidence-Based Practice at Maimonides Medical Center, Brooklyn, New York. 
Hi, my name is Roxana Lane. I'm from uh, Driscoll Children's Hospital, and I'm a skin and wound care specialist. I'm Mary Beth Dwyer, and I work um, at Bon Secours uh, St. Mary's Hospital in Richmond, Virginia. Let's hear what being a maker means to these nurses. The inventions, I think, start at the bedside. Uh, the need is always at the bedside first. We have to make the things ourselves. If you took a person that sat behind a desk, that was a maker behind a desk, doesn't have the clinical experience at the bedside, then you still can't find the right way to apply that product because you're missing that skill that's at the bedside that the nurse has that she's able to create. As we tap into the knowledge and the wisdom of nurses um, in new and different ways, then it will only positively impact the healthcare delivery and healthcare at large. You know, and we're at the bedside 24-7. It doesn't necessarily just have to be the person working for the, the nurse working for the vendor coming up with the idea, you know, um, we can celebrate the, like, little wins we have on our own. There's nothing like a person who's actually, you know, doing it and creating and because um, healthcare is ever-evolving and the problems are ever-changing. I think the best way to understand what Maker Nurse is all about is to hear about some of these nurses' specific bedside innovations. Let's start with Roxana, who works in a children's hospital. Then Kelly and Mary Beth will weigh in. We would roll blankets and use tape to hold uh, the blanket together to create it as a roll, or maybe create uh, by using a diaper some tape and rolling that, being able to tape a pacifier to the diaper to be able to use that kind of as a holder for the baby. So we'll get a couple of pieces of materials together and we'll have to create something, some kind of uh, product that would help assist us in what we need to do. Unfortunately, because a lot of companies, because they have to sell in a large volume, maybe the NICU is not a big area where they would be making a lot, a lot of money. You know, we have to make the things ourselves. Something that I've learned from our geriatric nurse practitioner when they're dealing with the older population, typically their caregivers, meaning their families, um, take home with them things like hearing aids that then we have problems communicating with the geriatric population because they don't have their hearing aid devices. And the nurses will make out of paper um, sort of an amplifier to be able to ensure that the patients are understanding. When we have patients who are blind and they can't see the paging, the, you know, the nurse call bell, they don't know what button to press. Um, nurses will either, you know, tape a cotton ball over the um, the nurse button so the patient can feel it or taking a um, electrode from our heart monitor and just sticking, because it's got adhesive on it, and sticking that over the spot so the patient can feel the little nub. I think a, a lot of informal, though, in, um, informal workarounds are, are just passed down from generation to generation of nurse. A lot of the time spent in the world of nursing is hunting and gathering. If I could change anything about the supply closet, it would be more like um, the pneumatic tube system in a bank drive through where you would be able to have unlimited resources where at the click of a button it just kind of flies up um, so that you can have what you need in real time. We have to think outside the box. We have to... Um, you know, figure out how to do, how to use the things in our supply closet to take care of our patients and just kind of challenging ourselves to see things beyond their intended purpose. What Maker Nurse has brought to our hospital has been an increase in morale. The increase in morale because it actually becomes fun. These are things we do every day, but we don't really 
uh, give ourselves credit of how much of an impact it actually makes on these kids' lives, you know, or the lives of the parents. You know, one of the things that nurses, uh, when they don't speak up, they typically have the answer or part of the solution or the entire solution. And I think that we will miss the boat completely if we don't involve nurses in creating what is needed and at the bedside in the 21st century. Little Devices Labs and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation are currently collecting stories from inventive nurses across the nation to better understand what drives them to take innovation into their own hands and how best to nurture the creative potential of the American nurse. Are you a maker nurse or do you know someone who is? Visit makernurse.org for more information. Let's stay on the front lines of innovation for the time being and hear from two of Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's pioneering grantees. The single most innovative thing about our model, it inverts the pyramid. Uh, almost all paradigms start with the highest value and flows down. And so, you know, everything that we do starts at the other end. We start at where their things have no value, and we create value out of them. That's Terry McDonald. Director of St. Vincent de Paul, an organization out in Eugene, Oregon, that receives funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We repurpose a lot of materials coming out of the waste stream, meaning transfer sites and dumps, uh, either for reuse or remanufacturing or repurposing into upcycling of new products. Uh, it's a strategy that allows us to take what would be normally waste in the waste stream, uh, have that material uh, create jobs and employment that sustains its efforts uh, with no outside public funds. Another grantee of ours, Serum, is also in the recycling business in a way. They redistribute surplus medicine to people who need it. That's S-I-R-U-M, by the way. It stands for Supporting Initiatives to Redistribute Unused Medicine. So hello, I'm George Wong, co-founder of Serum. Uh, we're a nonprofit that repurposes unused surplus medicine that would have otherwise been destined for the waste. And by using technology, we efficiently get this medicine to safety net pharmacies that then subsequently dispense that medicine to folks that are underinsured or uninsured. Because of the similarities in their approaches, we recently invited Terry and George, who had never previously met, to have a conversation about the challenges and opportunities they see around alternative marketplaces and how they contribute to a culture of health. Terry got things started. So you guys never really touch the drugs. You just are kind of a dating service. You know, yeah, we, we really like to call ourselves the match.com of unused medicine, and we really just provide um, the technology to, to, for folks to, hey, upload. I have X, Y, and Z excess over here, and, you know, a community pharmacist says, hey, I need X and I need Z, and then we provide all, like, shipping logistics, we provide the communication, so it goes from donor to recipient directly. Well, it's really a great idea, and especially given the cost of disposal of uh, yeah. unused medicines, uh, you know, as we're all learning now, you really don't want to put those in landfills, and you don't want to flush it down the toilet, uh, because, it, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of this stuff survives that and ends up in our drinking water in one form or another. Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, finding a realistic and, uh, and uh, compassionate uh, way of getting that stuff redistributed is really good. Thank you, Terry. So how we deal with our waste, what we perceive of what we cast off, 
uh, is a, something that has dramatic impact on community health. Uh, it also has a dramatic impact on, uh, on how we create jobs and employment, especially in stabilized, uh, to try and stabilize low-income populations. Uh, and if there's any health issue that is right on the cusp of uh, low-income neighborhoods, uh, it's associated with uh, do we have a stable platform to live and do we have an ability to create our own wealth. Uh, and so finding a way to take the waste from our society and find new platforms for remanufacturing or upcycling of that material creates community wealth and creates community health and wealth both at the same time. If you're able to provide medicine to a patient, they're more likely to go to the doctor. If you're able to provide medicine at a low cost or free to a patient, then they're not forced to choose between healthy food, child care, education. Um, so it's all interconnected in the sense that um, they're, by providing this medicine, you're able to then provide health for a family and a community in a, in a, in a holistic manner, um, kind of pulling back a little bit at a systemic level, you know, as we're looking as a country to um, lower healthcare costs in general, providing medicine to folks means less people are going to end up in the ER. I think it's a really fascinating time to be in this space, and the reason why, at least from my point of view, it, you know, probably because of, of you know living here in Silicon Valley, is that we're able to build alternative marketplaces so much easier because of technology. Or are there are there needs on the technology front that um, that you guys have that that you think solutions are that could be made? Well, you guys hit it on it early on, and that's logistics. Uh, everything associated with the waste stream is you know you got to move stuff and you got to move it in bulk. Uh, and you've got to get it to the right place, but you know how do you get it from here to there cost effectively? And that's, you know, by accessing really a good knowledge of backhaul rates uh, on intermodal traffic, uh, and that's something if somebody could figure out how to get that technology out to us, uh, we could probably double or triple the size of our business pretty quickly because we have to leave things in the stream that we can't figure out how we're going to get it to market. So, you know, that's an uh, that's an unplowed field. Next one is you know, emerging markets for products. Uh, commodity brokering of the non-traditional markets uh, would be very helpful. Um, and there just isn't anybody focusing in the non-traditionals. I mean, you know, you still got pork bellies and, you know, steel and aluminum, all the rest of those, the typical commodities. But the non-traditional commodities just don't have a way to figure out where the best markets are for them. So it's basically, you know, stumbling around the dark trying to figure out where it's going to be. You know what? What's really exciting about what we do is that you know while, while we work on medicine now, you know we really believe that our platform and kind of the logistics we we um, build out and hope to continue to build out will really make it just easier and easier for really just matching surplus with demand. You know, you, you, right now you we can plug in barcodes and and um, and identify pills really easily. We do that really well, and and it's um, you know we can get that from point A to point B. But you can just as well imagine looking for um, where the need for the, the cotton that you guys have and other parts of mattresses you guys have. I think it, it it's um, it's not out of the realm of possibility for our system to really be able to plug in into the, the kind of the marketplaces that you, you want to be playing in. You know, it would be fun to have a platform out there where you said, okay, uh, I have this commodity and it's consistent. Uh, I have this stuff coming in on a regular basis uh, and I've got this many tons of it. Uh, the thrift industry takes in a lot of paraffin, for example. Uh, so that's old burned-out candles. Uh, and, you know, you got you 
can't sell a, a, a candle stub worth anything, so what are you going to do with it? Uh, most of it ends up going into the landfill. Right, we can make a, a new marketplace uh, for ideas, right? You know, put, you yeah. know, put up your surplus commodities, and then we'll, we'll just uh, yeah, figure out what you're crowdsource it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that whole idea of crowdsourcing, I think, is uh, one of the best ideas to come along in a long time. There's only so many resources available in the nonprofit community. Why not use all of them? Uh, which leads me to the question, how do you address the, the problem of, you know, expired products? That's a good question. You know, every state has their own law about how you can um, move the donated medicine, what type of medicine can be donated. Um, it's typically uh, medicine that is uh, unopened. In addition to that, all, all of the domestic programs require the medicine to be unexpired. Medicine expiration dates are, are one of those things, um, probably like food expiration dates, where, where it typically um, there's a window of opportunity after that, that expiration date for proper use. Those are kind of the areas in which I think there's potential for further innovation. You know, is it you know, kind of looking at are there ways in which we can really know whether a drug is still effective and if we can tap into that type of technology, um, maybe extend the shelf life of drugs uh, further. Um, in, in addition to that, oh, I think it's really interesting for uh, medicine in particular and probably medical supplies is kind of thinking about how they're being packaged. You know, like uh, when you or I probably get medicine from CVS or Walgreens, it's coming in um, the amber vials that, you know, it doesn't have a seal. And so once you open it, it it's hard for folks to tell whether or not it's been kept uh, at room temperature or has it been sitting in your hot and humid, you know, bathroom. Uh, and, and so I think there might be some innovative ideas around is there some sort of packaging that has indicators that could tell us whether or not things have been kept out of range. And if they haven't, then maybe we can you know, repurpose those and reuse those um, more effectively. Chasing the attitude toward expiration dates would be a big, would be a big step forward. Well, what we recognize and what we're working toward is that there really is no waste. We have to treat the waste stream not as waste but as an asset, an opportunity for jobs and employment, uh, as well as stewardship of our own planet. Uh, we have to treat these things with a full life cycle. These are valuable things that we can create new opportunities and new employment and new community values out of at the same time as preventing these things from doing harm to our own water and air and, uh, and land. And I think it's really exciting to think about the fact that there is no waste at all, and we should be always finding a way to properly shunt, um, you know, resources that we all collectively have and, and are running out of. It's an interesting time when you can both take advantage of the technology to address, you know, very specific needs like, uh, you know, incineration or landfilling of products that we know shouldn't happen and find alternative ways to deal with that at the same time, uh, creating a stable platform for communities to grow. I love that we were able to eavesdrop on that conversation, and I'm so grateful that those guys found the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation separately so that we could connect them to each other. Speaking of connecting people, the Foundation's entrepreneur-in-residence, Thomas Goetz, recently assembled an unlikely group of collaborators on a project called Visualizing Health. I realize it's a bit counterintuitive to talk about a visual project without being able to show you anything, and I hope you'll check out the visuals themselves at vizhealth.org. That's V-I-Z-H-E-A-L-T-H dot org. 
But the story here isn't just the graphics we've created. It's how these diverse collaborators work together, the research methods they used, and the open source way that they are sharing their work, all of which helped fuel their innovation. Their mission? Find new ways to effectively communicate information about health risks, ways of sharing health data that will make the most sense to the most people. As Thomas puts it, The world is full of health information, uh, information that can help people make better decisions, the possibility of presenting information graphically has clearly a huge potential, but we lack data about how to present data. Thomas and the Foundation's Andrea Dukas brought in two key collaborators to help them solve this problem. So we joined forces with the University of Michigan and folks from their School of Public Health uh, and their Center for Health Communication, and we asked them to help us design a study, design a project that would test these visualizations in a scientifically valid way. The lead designer on the project was Tim Leong. I uh, work to find and commission artists to do all these fantastic infographics and charts and data visualizations. They were very detailed and very meticulous in terms of what they wanted from the artists. Um, you know, I think people's first thought might be that that is too restricting and that how can they be, how can these artists be so, try to be creative when you have such a very tight set of parameters. But I'm a big believer in uh, constraints breed creativity. Here's Brian Zickmund Fisher from Michigan School of Public Health. I help to shape and create the tasks that we ask the designers to tackle. I then also coordinated and um, designed the testing program that we implemented, testing each image not just one time, but multiple times using different uh, online survey tools to identify when there were better images, which ones they were, and why they were better. Andrea Dukas emphasizes that a secondary project goal was to try out an agile approach to testing the visualizations. So one of the interesting um, things about this project and something that Thomas uh, really wanted to bring to the table was experimenting with new methods of uh, lean science um, that is, ways of conducting tests and conducting surveys that could be more easily replicable by lay people or folks that don't have access to tens of thousands of dollars in grant money um, and who don't have months and months of time to devote to a project. Here's Brian again from the University of Michigan. One thing that we knew going in but that was reinforced to us in this project is how valuable it is to think of any process particularly a research or a development process like this, in an iterative way, where you do something and you see what happens and then you go back and you try again, and then you go back and you try again. The online survey tools themselves, um, Google Consumer Surveys, the online survey platform Qualtrics, which many people use for a variety of purposes. We got sample from Survey Sampling International and Amazon MTurk. These are all freely available tools. All you have to do is be, know that they exist and be willing to try them. And once you do, then you have the opportunity to realize how easy it is to just you know, put something, get 100 people's worth of feedback, and see if that works. And if need be, go back and change it. That's also why we're uh, producing Visualizing Health as a platform uh, under a Creative Commons license. Uh, we're ho hoping to encourage designers and researchers 
and uh, help professionals uh, to build on what we've done, to adapt some of our messages, and to really kind of be inspired by what we're doing. Anybody who's trying to convey health information with the goal of reaching the most people and the most impact on everyday behaviors, that's our target. So the ultimate user of the tools that we developed for visualizing health are consumers, citizens, ordinary people who who are faced with difficult challenges, difficult questions in their day-to-day health decisions. The culture of health is about making health a positive experience in our day-to-day lives. That's what we hope these visualizations can can address is to be one part of that, one one little tool that can plug in into that real-world um, culture of health and help us make those decisions with a little bit a bit little bit more ease. As Brian emphasizes, effective health data visualization is not a one-size-fits-all approach. The main goal of visualizing health is to give people ideas for how best to present health data and to help them understand that there is no single best way to present data, that it really does depend upon what your goals are and what your purpose is and who you're trying to reach. Design lead Tim Leong sums up our vision for this project. I really hope this is the beginning and not the end. Um, and that we've started the conversation. It's not really a statement. It's, it's, it's meant to be carried on and continued. You can help us carry on this important work. Just go to vizhealth.org, use the visualizations, adapt them, share them, and let us know what you think. Staying with the theme of design, if you could design a culture of health from scratch, what would it look like? How would people spend their time? How would you design the places where we would live, work, and play? This is something we spend a lot of time thinking about here at RWJF. We were recently at the annual TED conference where we hosted a workshop on the subject of designing and building a culture of health. Our featured speakers? game designer and former RWJF grantee Jane McGonigal, and Tim Brown, the head of IDEO, a leading design and innovation consulting firm. Not surprisingly, they led a fascinating conversation. Here are just a few highlights. We'll start with Jane. Most individuals, certainly in the United States healthcare system, approach healthcare with depression or anxiety as a primary emotion. Um, They're depressed because they feel like there's nothing they can do to improve their health. Um, Or they have anxiety. They have symptoms that they don't understand. They don't want to know what's behind them. They um, have had no success in the healthcare system, so they've just sort of opted out. I don't go to the doctors anymore. I just, you know, I'd rather not know. Um, And so those two primary emotions are driving people's relationship to their health, which is why we have so many people um, living with chronic conditions that are preventable. So what I'm interested in is how can we use games to flip the anxiety and depression into self-efficacy? This idea of self-efficacy, I think, is tremendously important. I think there's another component when it comes to health that, um, that we have to shift, I think, and, and, and perhaps a gaming mindset does this, but shift from being kind of passive consumers of health yeah. to active participants mm-hmm. in it, which means we actually have to kind of design our own our own health. We have to design our lives intentionally. And we need to give people tools, um, ways of 
designing lives for themselves. Yep. Um, not in some big grand thing, but one small step at a time. Yeah, and dialing back what you expect from people, so what, you know, setting their, their target health goals and target behaviors to things that you can really achieve and have those moments of success. Because I think right now in our health culture, um, there are these giant recommendations that sound scary. Mm. To, well, and uh, impossible and for me. Yeah. I, th I think we have to reframe the questions. Um, I think we have to design for some... For, for human experiences, not just for kind of an efficient healthcare system, which yeah. is what we've been doing for the last 40 or 50 years. The biggest societal shift that I think we could make towards a culture of health is one that um, is not getting a lot of traction, which is the, the length of a typical standard work week. Um, so if you could reduce 40 hours to 30 hours a week, there is this uh, incredible spectrum of health benefits. People have um, more time for physical activity, less sedentary um, behavior during the day, more time with their family, more time for social interaction, more time to cook their food. There was a huge longitudinal study showing that if you feel like you have control over your time each day, um, it's better for your cardiovascular health than quitting a pack of cigarettes a day habit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there are things like this that we don't think about in the context of, you know, it's not about hospitals and medications. It's about the, the world that we live in that makes it incredibly difficult to prioritize health and to live in a healthy way. You could argue that the, 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 what, what we're, actually, we're actually taking things in the opposite direction to that, that these wonderful tools we carry around with us right. actually tether us to work. Yes, yeah. And, and the instant reaction is if I haven't got something else purposeful to do rather than going exercise I'll go check my email mm -hmm. or I'll go and look at another website or yep. I'll open another app yeah um, that if anything we're, we're 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 distancing ourselves even further from right. those kinds of healthful choices although the biggest impact um, in terms of giving uh, the benefits of giving more time control is with folks who aren't necessarily in a sort of the creative uh, workspace, but, you know, are doing jobs that are uh, not, not the kind of job that you do out of passion and you're right. looking to, you know, the next great email or the next great project, um, but individuals who are, are, you know, working these long hours um, at work that they would prefer probably to do less of. Yeah. Uh, One of the greatest health projects I've seen in the last couple of weeks <coughs> is um, Emily Pilaton, who's t spoken here at TED before, yeah. runs Studio H, and she did this project in North Carolina a little town, uh, crubby high unemployment, um, uh, poor health, and, and she went and taught high school kids uh, design and making and construction for, for a year, and they built a farmer's market in town. That farmer's market has created more than a dozen new businesses in town. There are 40 stalls at the farmer's market every, every, every week, and people are eating fresh vegetables that they didn't have access to before. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to see more of, of, of us thinking about health in those terms. Yeah. Here at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, we've supported several efforts that engage patients in redesigning how they interact with their healthcare providers. One such project is Open Notes, an initiative that makes it easy to receive your doctor visit notes at home. Another project is Split the Clinic, which asks people to reimagine the clinical encounter. As Tim's example shows, the do-it-yourself maker movement is changing more than homes and hospitals. In his example, kids made a farmer's market that changed a town. If that's possible, maybe it's possible to achieve Jane's vision of cutting down the length of the American work week as a path to better health. What radical changes would you like to see to help us create a true culture of health? 
To leave a comment or learn more about the pioneering ideas we're supporting, please visit us online at rwjf.org slash podcast. That's it for Episode 4 of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pioneering Ideas Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll share it with others. Talk to you soon. Thank you.